what a blessing. I think it was yesterday, I was driving in my car and I was thinking about the baptism. And I, all I could think of was, this is what we do. This is what we do. And I, so I get a little excited when I think about souls being one to the kingdom. Amen? This is what we do. Ah, Zechariah. We also do Zechariah. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah this morning. Uh, I'm also excited about Zechariah. This is our second sermon in a series. We had to take a week off last week, but we are in this book, Zechariah chapter one still. Jesus welcomes you and we welcome you. The title of the series is Unfinished Business for obvious reasons, right? The So in the time of Zechariah, Zechariah and Haggai are contemporaries. By the way, Ezekiel overlapped also and Daniel, right? Because we're talking about the coming out of Babylon, the exile. So this is a post-exilic book or a book after the exile. There were probably about a million uh, Jews in Babylon. About 50,000 only came out. He did the call to come out of Babylon. So then this is the remnant that Zechariah is ministering to. We are the remnant church of the last days. So there is, um, and there are others that will be part of that remnant. And so that's uh, exciting. And that kind of gives the parallel. There was the remnant there that had unfinished business. God wanted to finish the business. The remnant today, it's God's job to finish the business and he will do it. Our last sermon was the repentance of Laodicea. We looked at verses 1 through 6 of Zechariah. And we'll look at those again briefly, but we looked at uh, the call to repentance. And again, we'll look at that here again briefly. But then we looked in the book of Revelation. We looked at the last church, which is Laodicea. And we looked at the call to repentance from that scripture. Upcoming events. Next week, we're going to talk about where glory dwells. That's also from the book of Zechariah. Glory dwelled in the first temple, right? The Shekinah. The second temple was more glorious, right? Because Jesus himself was there. What about the third temple that evangelicals are looking to be set up in the Middle East? Can't tell you what it is now. You'll have to come next week to find out where glory dwells, the third temple. And then May 15, when Satan told the truth. We know that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, right? But he doesn't always have to lie. What about the day that he told the truth? That's from Zechariah chapter 3. Then the day of small things from Zechariah 4. We're just working our way right through this book. And then BC grad, May 29th, Jem Castor will be our speaker, my good friend. And so I'm excited about that. Also, and then June 5th, this will be sort of our evangelism kickoff. We're having an evangelistic series in October. And our speaker, Paul Punch, will be here in June to kind of fire us up and get us uh, ready for this October event. So he will be here then, June 12th is communion, rounding out June, the last two weeks are camp meeting. I have had questions about camp meeting. So far, they're planning on a full camp meeting. So uh, we hope that continues. I heard an amen there. And uh, yes, so we'll see if, I don't know if there'll be any restrictions, kind of hard to say at this point. But right now they're planning on a full camp meeting and it is filling up already. 
All right, well, that's upcoming events. Unfinished business. Today we look at basically two of the eight visions. Zechariah was given eight visions in one night. How would you like to have that kind of a night? The red horse rider and the four horns of Zechariah. So let's pray as we get into it. Father in heaven, we just ask that you open up the pages of our heart to the pages of your word today. It's a small book. It's considered a minor prophet, but there are major implications from what we read in these pages. So please send your spirit, Lord. Give us clarity of understanding. Give us conviction of your spirit and make us changed people when we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, unfinished business. Indeed, there was unfinished business then, and there is now, but God is going to finish his business in quick order. Of course, they were building a temple there in Jerusalem or rebuilding it, and God is building something in these days also. Now, if you don't get anything else, you've got to get this, because this is so key to the whole series. The names of Zechariah and his father and grandfather. You got to get this. is just this is exciting to me. Verse 1. If you look in Zechariah 1, verse 1, hopefully you found it. I should have told you how to find it. From Matthew, you probably found it by now. Um, so anyway, how many of you have found it? Say amen. <laughs> okay. All right. Zechariah 1, 1 says this. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, and so now we're into, you know, we had Cyrus kind of set the thing in motion, right? the return, but now we have Darius on the scene. This is 520 BC, by the way. Came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet, saying. Now, these names are so cool. Look at what these names mean, right? Zechariah means God remembers. Berechiah means God blesses. And Edu means at the appointed time. Is that cool or what? Put those names together. God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time. Oh, if Israel would have just understood that and accepted that, would have meant a lot in their experience. The same with us, right? We want things on our time scale. Not always God's timing, but God remembers and God blesses at the appointed time, his appointed time. So very important um, to understand the whole book. And this is a book to encourage the remnant to build and to finish the building. So it's a message of encouragement. It's meant to be for us also. So I like to give a one sermon in one sentence, but there's sort of two sermons today. So I have two sentences, but here's the first one. And this is about the red horse rider who's down in the bottom among the myrtle trees. We'll look at that in Zechariah here in a minute, <clears throat> but here's the one sentence sermon or lesson. When things look dark, when things look discouraging, Christ is right by your side to bring light and hope. Come on and say amen if that's good news. In your darkest hour, Christ is right there. Never forget that. He is there to bring light and hope. All right, so then this is the second one-sentence sermon, and this is about verses 18 through 21, the four horns. And it says this, God measures nations 
by their relations to the remnant. Repeat that for you. God measures the nations by their relations to the remnant. Amen? It's not the other way around. We think of, oh, what's this nation going to do? The question is, what's the remnant going to do? Right? I mean, that's the focal point. God measures the nations by their relations to the remnant. One key for understanding, you'll see several angels coming in the mix here. There's an interpreting angel, which Zechariah goes to again and again. This angel told me, or, or Zechariah will ask a question. He's like, you don't know that yet? No, I don't know that. And then Zechariah will, I mean, the angel will interpret. <clears throat> That's one angel, but the other angel that we see here is the angel of the Lord. And anytime you see angel of the Lord with all caps, L-O-R-D, in your Bible, it's usually a, like a sort of a, smaller, all-cap Lord, that is speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ, all right? Christ before the incarnation. Christ is not an angel. This is just code for Christ appearing. So we have a Christophany in the Old Testament. Every time you see angel of the Lord, that's a picture of Christ himself. Okay, so that will help you as we go through the scripture. Let's do it now. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. I've actually already read verse 1 to you here, 520 B.C. The word of the Lord comes a-running to speak to them and to speak to us. The Lord, verse 2, has been sore displeased with your fathers or um, angry with an anger. It's kind of the, the Hebrew way it reads. It's, it's, he's not happy. <clears throat> because they're hurting themselves, basically. Verse 3, Therefore say unto them, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, we looked at that before. It's 53 times, maybe? A lot of times in this small book, you see the Lord of hosts. Or if you have other versions, it might say the Lord Almighty. This is Yahweh Sabaoth, right? Or Jehovah Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord over all armies, right? And over all hosts. The hosts of the stars, he's over that. The hosts of military might, he's over that, amen? He's got all the power in the universe to do you good. That is the Lord of hosts. That's what it says. Therefore say unto them, verse three, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn you to me says the Lord of hosts. And I will turn to you, says the Lord of hosts. So God is calling, return. He makes the initiation and chases after his people, as we're going to talk about this evening. David's going to talk about how far will he chase us? How long will he chase? Well, we'll know tonight. Verse 4, Be not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts. There it is again. <clears throat> Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. So don't be like the previous generation, which didn't hear and didn't follow my word. Be different than that. Verse 5, your fathers, are they still around? Nope. And the prophets, how about them? Nope, but something is still around, the word, right? Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, did they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did not they take hold of your fathers? 
And here's a key turning point. You might say, well, what in that message brought repentance? Not exactly sure, but it did, because that's what the next part of the verse says. And they returned, or they repented, and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doing, so has he dealt with us. And so there was repentance. We know repentance, when we looked at that two weeks ago, is the gift of God. We know it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And so they had turned their hearts and minds to God. But repentance assures peace with God. Indeed, it does, right? And the first fruits of justification, Romans 5.1, is peace with God. But it doesn't necessarily assure peace with the world. Amen? <laughs> in fact, sometimes when your focus is just, just maniacal on the Lord, you may be antithetical to things going on in the world and therefore feel the brunt of that. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Amen? Following God's direction is always the best way to go. And that peace, like a river, will flood our souls. Let's look on, continue now as we look through at 7 through 9. We've got a lot of material to cover today. <clears throat> now, this is the day in which he had the eight different visions. It would be the 4 and 20th of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat. In the second year of Darius came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, the prophet, saying, verse 8, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. So he's in kind of a ravine. There are these myrtle trees. They have these out in California. It's not really much of a tree out there. It's more of a kind of a bush, kind of a brushy thing. Um, but the cool thing about the myrtle tree is, uh, or bush, if you, if you uh, hit the leaves and kind of crush them, there's, they have a sweet smell to them. And so that would be the experience of God's people like the myrtle trees, right? Even though we're in the bottom, the red horse rider is with us. And this is not the same. Don't uh, try to draw a direct comparison to Revelation because it's, it's not the same. Uh, this red horse rider, I believe, is Christ himself. And red is the crimson color of his blood that flowed for you and I. And he'll be with us in our low points and in our high points. And he can make our experience sweet, even when in most cases, I mean, in, according to most you know, ideas, it should be bitter. And you've seen that uh, with people that know the Lord and love the Lord. So he sees this red horse rider among the myrtle trees in the bottom and behind him were other horses, red speckled and white. Then said I, O oh my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me, this would be the interpreting angel, said unto me, I will show you what these are. Verse 10. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees, so this is, now we hear about him as a man. He's the rider of the uh, red horse. The man among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are what, these are whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So the question is to the red horse rider, what are these other horses? What are they doing? And the answer is they're walking to and fro throughout the earth to check it out. And that word walk doesn't mean walk, it really means 
to seek intensely. And that's the heart of God, amen? He is, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. He's going to be knocking on your heart's door until your death's day saying, come back to me. That's the heart of God. That's verse 10. Unfortunately, the land was quiet. And this was Medo-Persia's kind of problem, right? It really was apathy. I mean, we'll look further at Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome from this guy and from Daniel 7 and from Zechariah 1 and from Joel 1. But having said all that, Medo-Persia's problem was apathy. They didn't really care that God's people were in a rough situation. Verse 11 They answered the angel of the Lord, now, we know who that is, that stood among the myrtle trees. Oh, so it's he that's down there among the myrtle trees. And said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth sits still and is at rest. Now, God's people are hurting, but the world is just going on with life as usual. Verse 12, then the angel of the Lord answered, First of all, about verse 11, this is historical references. Darius boasted that in 19 battles, he had defeated nine rebels, subdued all his enemies. So the empire was, in essence, at rest. We know that historically to be true. Then verse 12 and onward, God is watching his people, amen? Later on, he's going to call the church the apple of his eye, right? So he's not... Uh, unobservant to what's going on in their lives. He's not unobservant to what's going on in your life. He's watching and he's there to help. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts. Now here, I think we have the father and the son conversing. Jesus, like a high priestly prayer, right? Like in John 17, when he's praying to the father. Watch it with me as we read. Then the angel of the Lord answered, verse 12, and said, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. So the son praying to the father, how long, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which thou hast had indignation these 70 years? And the Lord answered, the angel that talked with me with good words, and comfortable words. There was a good news message at the end of all this. So the angel that communed with me, interpreting angel said, cry. He said, go. He says, I've got a message for you. Go, you speak. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. God loves you today. He loves his church. He loves his people. He is jealous with a great jealousy, verse 15. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. They're at ease while you guys are feeling badly. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God is getting ready to work on behalf of his people And many times it's always the darkest. Well, I guess it's always the darkest (laughs) just before dawn, right? And so that is true in our lives, right? Many times it seems like, wow, you know, and you get really down at a low point and then God lifts you up, amen? At his appointed time, why didn't he do it sooner? 
All he knows, God's always on time. Amen? <laughs> I don't question his timing. He's never late. He's not always early, but he's never late. We know that. Cry, I am going to return to Jerusalem. With a, I have a great jealousy for them. He's sore angry with the nations around them that are at ease. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched out or stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So God is watching. God is measuring what's happening to you in your life. He cares Verse 17, cry yet saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God who has all power to do you good. My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and yet choose Jerusalem. So God knows his people. He knows his remnant today. He's working on our behalf. It may not always seem like that. You may wonder what's going on around you in your personal life. You may wonder what's going on around you in the political world, in our nation or other nations. God is in control of all of this, and he's going to prove it in these next four verses that we'll look at here. But to summarize those verses, the red horse rider, when things look dark and discouraging, where's Christ? He's right by your side to bring light and hope. That's our God. And so troubles will come, <clears throat> but God will be with us. Satan's work has been the same since the days of Adam <clears throat> to the present. Well, and he has pursued it with great success. Now, if his work has been the same and he's been really successful at it, we want to know what this is so we can stay as far away from it as possible, right? So here it is tempting man to two things, to distrust God's love and to doubt his wisdom. And isn't that what we're tempted to do when we're down in a valley, right? Distrust God's love and doubt his wisdom. And in the great closing work of the rebellion, the powers of evil will unite in a desperate struggle to work out their deceptive plans to lead souls to ruin. Remember, God is stronger than the enemy. This is interesting because this was written in 1909. Ministers and physicians and men in positions of trust as lawmakers will unite in this work of rebellion. Thousands are already taking their place on the side of satanic agencies. Let him who hears make application of this prophecy, I would call it. <clears throat> is it happening now? Is it soon in the future? One thing we know is this. Satan's work is always the same, tempting you to distrust God's love and to doubt his wisdom. Don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. God cares. God remembers. God blesses at the appointed time. His timing is perfect. Israel, of course, had a time when they were wondering, hey, I don't know if God is really with us. Um, and so <clears throat> the book of Isaiah uses this graphic illustration. I mean, what mother would not, what mother would just like give up on their, their sucking child, right? Their, their ch child which has just been born. 
surely that wouldn't happen. But listen to what he says. He contrasts that with, with his love and his faithfulness. Surely they may forget. It's possible, I guess, that some mother who just had a baby would forget the baby. Yet I will not forget you. God will not forget you. He is the Lord of hosts. He has all power to do you good, and he cares about the very smallest thing going on in your life. He will not forget you. Red prefigured his own blood, and Christ has already taken care of business for us. Above the distractions of the earth, God is not distracted. (laughs) He sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey. And from his great and calm eternity, he orders that which his providence sees best. Now, you might say, well, I've had something in my life happen, and I just don't know that it fits that. Well, here's what I believe. I believe that when we get to heaven, God's going to take us aside, put his arm around us, and show us how he answered every prayer in just the right way for his glory and for our best good. Amen? I believe it to be true. What have I done? Philippians says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Let nothing discourage you. Keep cheerful. Stand under the bright rays of the sun of righteousness. Amen? He will get you through. All right, we've got one more. And this is uh, a sermonette. Sermon part two, verses 18 through 21. God measures the nations by their relations to the remnant. All right, let's roll through this. Let's read it and then we'll unpack it. Says this, then lifted up my eyes and saw four horns. I beheld four horns. Horns are nearly always a symbol of power. Many times political power. Not always. Uh, Jesus was the horn of our salvation, right? He was the power for our salvation. But it's always about power and many times political. Verse 19, And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these? And he answered me. So we don't have to guess at what these are. The interpreting angel tells him, These are the horns which have scattered Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. So these were enemies of God's people that had scattered them through the years. The Lord then showed me four carpenters or four metalsmiths or maybe four hammerers uh, because both of those would use a hammer. So you have four horns, now you have four carpenters. Well, what, what are these coming to do? Verse 21 asks, An interpreting angel said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, so back to the horns, so that no man did lift up his head, but these, that is these hammers, have come to fray them and cast them out, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lift up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So you have four horns, and then you have four smiths or four carpenters or four hammers. Now, each of these nations were, rose up to cause Israel a problem. But was the problem too big for God, do you think? No. He had a solution already, right? For every horn, he had a hammerer to hammer that horn. And that's what we see in Daniel 2, right? You see four 
kingdoms. You're, you're scratching your head saying, hey, where have I heard this before? Four horns, four kingdoms, right? Well, of course, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 11, <clears throat> Revelation 13 in reverse order. Daniel 7, 17 says, those great beasts which are four are four kings which will arise out of the earth. So we have the same four talked about here in Zechariah, I believe. The fourth shall be a fourth kingdom of the earth. So four beasts, four kingdoms, four horns. And those four are Babylon, right, is the head of gold. And then Medo-Persia is the second, the silver. And then Greece is kind of the midsection. And then Rome is the legs, right, of Daniel 2. Uh, it's a fascinating vision, by the way, 2,500 years worth of history right there. God predicts it ahead of time. He says, this kingdom will be followed by this one. By the way, how many of them did he get right? All of them. <laughs> so if he's right about all those, what's the next kingdom to come? The rock, right, that's, that's not made with hands. All the rest of these are made with hands, but the rock that's cut out without hands that comes, right, comes at the feet of the, of the image and just blasts the whole thing to pieces. That's Christ's kingdom, amen? If he's right about these four, he's right about the next one. You can be sure of it. All right, the four horns are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. What about the four hammerers? or aiding powers. Well, who hammered Babylon? Medo-Persia. And by the way, don't miss this point. There's a lesson here for our salvation in these nations. Israel could not overcome these nations. They're just like, I, what am I? They had to pray, right? They had to lean on the Lord entirely. And God took care of his business. Amen? Babylon was hammered by Persia, you could say. Persia by Greece, Greece by Rome, and Rome by the rock kingdom of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Interesting, we just have four here. Now, we know Rome has two phases, sort of a pagan and then a papal phase, but there's only four. It doesn't go eight, 10, 12, nope, four. Rome's the last one, of course, before Christ who is the final one, the final kingdom that is above all kingdoms. Now, I love this statement. Charles sent me a, texted me a statement that's kind of close to this that I really like too, which is from our reading. This one is not, but, but this is so great. Um, so uh, follow along with me on this if you would. The strength of nations and of individuals is not found in the opportunities and facilities that appear to make them invincible. In Babylon, they all seemed invincible. But their strength is not found there. It's also not found in their boasted greatness. Where is it found? That which alone can make them great or strong is the what? It's the power of God, right? Now listen to this next part. They themselves by their attitude, so that a nation by itself, by its attitude towards his purpose, decide their own destiny. How is the nation lining up with God's purpose? Amen? God measures nations by their relations to his purpose. So how are we doing as a nation? Joel 1.4. This is one you may not have seen. But many Jewish scholars believe this too speaks 
of the four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. When you read Joel 1.4, you might think, sounds like a bunch of bugs and insects. Not sure what (laughs) what I'm getting out of this, but I want you to get something out of it here briefly before we close. It says this, this is the King James rendering, that which the palmer worm has left has the locust eaten, and that which the locust has left the canker worm has eaten, and that which the canker worm has left the caterpillar has eaten. Now, what this really is, is the four stages of the locust. It doesn't appear that way as the way we're reading it, but that's, if you look at the Hebrew, that's really what we're looking at here. And all of these... Um, have come to really destroy God's church and destroy the gospel. That is the deeper lesson beyond Joel's time. And I wish I had time to go into Joel chapter 2, where God restores the years of that which the locust has eaten. He does that through the latter rain and the loud cry message. God gave it to this church in 1888. What are we doing with it? But these four then are four different phases I think they apply with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Remember Babylon, the kingdom of gold in Daniel 7. They're the lion with great eagle's wings, right? Man's heart given to it. And then in these four um, stages of the locust, they are the ones that gnaw off or separate And you will see that in the captivity. They took them out. They gnawed them off from where they were and brought them into captivity. Let me read you just a little something from Jameson Fawcett Brown, and then we'll continue this. About, this is a commentary on Joel 1.4. The verse states, the subject on which he afterward expands, four species or stage of locusts rather than four different insects are meant. Literally, the gnawing locust, it's the first stage the swarming locust, second one, the licking locust, and the consuming locust form a climax to the most destructive kind. The last is often three inches long. Actually, I've read some commentary on this that some of these locusts were six inches long. I don't think I would want to see one of those guys. By the way, they were clean. So if we had potluck today, you could have that as a dessert, chocolate-covered locust. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Oh, I'm not so sure that I don't want to go there. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> but the other, another thing about these locusts is they could eat, I think it was per day, they could eat their weight in food. Think about that for a minute. When you go home for potluck today, are you going to eat 150 pounds worth of food or however much you weigh? Hopefully not, right? You're going to have massive indigestion. But you, so you can see the destructive power of these things, right? They could eat that much. Imagine a whole swarm of them. Well, going on, <clears throat> the two hinder of its six feet are larger than the rest, adapting it for leaping. The first kind, or the palmer worm as spoken of, is that of the locust having just emerged from the egg in the spring without wings. The second is at the end of spring, still in their first skin, the locust puts forth little ones without legs or wings. The third phase is when after their third casting of the old skin, they get small wings, which enable them to leap better, but not fly, being unable to go away till their wings are matured. They devour all before them grass, shrubs, bark trees, 
translated rough caterpillars in Jeremiah 51. The fourth kind, or the mature winged locusts, are those enumerated in reverse order in Joel chapter 2. Like I said, oh, I'd love to get into that with you, but we won't have time today. Where the restoration of the devastations caused by them is promised. The Hebrew makes the first species refer to Babylon, the second Medo-Persia, the third Greco-Macedonia, especially with Antiochus Epiphanes, that's what he called himself, uh, the greatest. They called him Epimenes, which means madman. Uh, The fourth to the Romans. So these are four stages and four countries all out to get God, his people, and his message, I believe, in the last days, because that's where the restoration comes in. Though the primary reference be to literal locusts, the Holy Spirit doubtless had in view successive empires which assailed Judah, each worse than its predecessor, Rome, of course, being the climax. Jerome and other historians go along with this. But what about these feet with iron and clay? They don't hold together. And this is probably one of Rome's, the worst things that it does or did or that it will still do. This iron and clay that won't mingle, I have a statement that says this, the mingling of churchcraft and statecraft is represented by the iron and clay. Hmm, interesting. Church and state. By the way, when church and state get together, you might think, well, I think our government needs a little church right now. It's never been good. Let me just put it that way. Because the church takes control and then it tells the government what to do and it's, yeah, doesn't go well. This union is weakening all the powers of the churches. This investing the church with the power of the state will bring what kind of results? Evil results. Men have almost passed the point of God's forbearance. And so time is short, amen? And that's a good thing. Jesus is coming soon. The sand in the hourglass of time has almost run out. Oh, and our Savior is coming. But that last message of mercy, right, must go to the world before he comes. God will have a people. He's calling them out. And he's calling them in today. Amen? Calling them into his last day truth for these days. And this message will go forward. So a couple of thought questions before we close. Are there situations in your life where you are tempted to doubt that God is taking care of business? You don't have to answer this out loud. (laughs) Are there situations where you're tempted to say, oh, yeah, I mean, I know he does, but I'm not sure. Secondly, are there situations in your life where you are tempted then to take care of business? (laughs) Kind of taking his business into your hands. By the way, who does that? Antichrist. (laughs) So you don't want to go there. Let him do his business. Amen? Shake the dust off your feet. Rise above it like the eagles, which when their littler birds try to peck at them and so forth, they can just go and go way out of their range above the distractions and the trials of the earth. Think about it. If God takes care of kingdoms, and he does, think he can take care of you? I think he can. He can take care of us. 
The Jews as a nation, and I shared this earlier, were helpless. They must have a deliverer. The story of nations is your story. God's care for the remnant then is God's care for the remnant now. He will take care of his business. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you in judgment, you will condemn, it says. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of who? Me, God says. It's of Jesus, says the Lord. One more promise from Chronicles. Jehoshaphat is told, right, you need not to fight this battle. Set yourselves, stand still. That's our problem sometimes. And see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not and do not be dismayed. This is to be a message of encouragement for them to build. It's a message of encouragement for us. God is building his church today. He's building us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Tomorrow go out against them for the Lord will be with you. God in Christ already took care of business. Amen? On the cross for every single one of us. That's what he did at Calvary. Your battles belong to who? To him. Give him the battles. By the way, he's the one that said, I will build my church and what will happen? Gates of hell will have no chance. They will not be able to stand against it. I wonder if sometimes we're too busy trying to build God's church when he says, I will build my church. I wonder. Your battles, my battles, belong to the Lord. How sweet are the tidings. We're going to sing as we close today. Kelly's coming up. How sweet are the tidings that greet the pilgrim's ear as he wanders in exile from home. But soon, soon will the Savior appear and soon his kingdom will come. Amen? Oh, how we look forward for that day. Let me pray with you and then we'll sing this closing song. Father in heaven, if you're able to predict and be in charge of kingdoms far in advance, you know our future. And if you're able to stand up for your remnant throughout the years, you will stand for your remnant in these last days. So thank you so much, Father, for sending Jesus to be that red horse rider, crimson blood stained uh, on our behalf. We're so grateful for Calvary and all that it means to us. May we look to you even in our darkest hours, knowing that there is hope and there is light always for the believers as we look to you, our great God and Savior. You are the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, and you're on our side. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.